This is Conversing with Creatives, Episode 4. I'm Jay Kasikov, and my guest today is Owen McLeod, a professor of philosophy at Lafayette College. It was really interesting talking to Professor McLeod because, damn, he has lived a really fascinating life. I don't want to give away too much, but if you're curious about what it's like to live in a Buddhist monastery in Thailand, then keep this podcast playing. That's all for introduction today. Here's Owen McLeod. Just the few modern philosophy papers that I have left over. Okay, so, so it's not it's not terrible, yeah, but be all right. in the mind it seems like a huge. Yeah, I get I get that. It's a huge burden. How many how many can you do at once without having to take a break? I can't do even one without taking a break. <laughs> <laughs> I have to. I have my my attention span when I'm grading is terrible. Yeah, it could take me an hour to grade one paper because I'll read the first paragraph, and uh, I'll just I'll just stop. Yeah. I think this is this, it's it's either fine in which case I stop, or it's terrible in which case I can't <laughs> right. bear to read it and I stop and I just yeah. turn my attention to other things. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean that's that's how it is while I'm writing. It's like, all right, well, uh, that was actually a pretty good sentence, so I think I've earned I like, I'll some go, type of. Go get a blueberry muffin. Or something. <laughs> yeah, right. Or I just I can't continue without the blueberry muffin. There's right. there's no way. So, Professor McLeod, I think I've been in your class three times so far and are you ready for this this surprise yeah you will have me two more times next semester holy cow uh so that would be what ethics and ethics and first philosophers philosophers. great yeah i'm looking forward to it i'm glad i'm glad you'll be there yeah me too yeah so obviously you're a philosophy major yeah i am are you a major in something else too i'm also history yes history so are you gonna do an honors thesis in history i am not i've decided against the honors thesis. that's good that's good there's no reason to do one yeah yeah. I mean, I think maybe if you were, I guess if you were thinking about going to graduate school, there'd be some argument for it. Right. That is what I was thinking about when I was deliberating. And at a certain point, maybe six months ago, even, I was like, maybe I will want to go to graduate school. Yeah. And then some sometime in that six month period, I was like, no, I don't. I'm not going to do an honors uh, thesis. I guess that's, I guess that's made up my mind for me. What are you going to do? Oh, yeah, all right. Oh, man. You don't, you um, <laughs> well, so I want to, ideally, in the, in the ideal world, I would like to be a writer for film, television. I like comedy a lot. Yeah. So I would like to do that. Boy, that would be fun, wouldn't it? It would be fun. God. Yeah. And one thing I did hear about you is that you wrote screenplays at one point. I did. In your life. I and did. I was like, Wow. That's, <laughs> if he can do that's it, really, <laughs> no, that is, that's not what I thought. <laughs> no, well, maybe for a second, but yeah, I mean, I, d- I wasn't a professional screenwriter. Uh, I did write several uh, screenplays, partly just as an exercise in uh, creative writing, just to see if I could do it. I've been watching a lot of films, yeah. and I, I thought I could do that. I could write one of those. So I started teaching myself how to do it. And it became fairly serious. And after a while, I started entering, um, you know, there's a bunch of screenwriting competitions. And one of them is the, it's sort of like the gold standard screenwriting competition. It's the Nickel Fellowship. It's, it's hosted by, not hosted by, but under the auspices of the Motion Picture Academy or whatever okay. that thing is called, the Oscars yeah. people. Sure. Um, so I sent a screenplay to that, that competition, that fellowship competition. And uh, it was a semi-finalist. So I think wow. out of 7,000 scripts, there were 120 that made it to the semi-final round. And people who read uh, screenplays for that competition are often people who are in the business or the industry, right. whatever the whatever the word is. And so, in fact, a guy who was a manager called me at some point and said, "I read your screenplay. I'm sorry I didn't make it to the, you know, to the award ceremony, but I, I thought the writing was really strong, and I wonder if you, you know, would like to like me to shop this script around." Wow. Yeah. So that was cool, and he he did, and it got some interesting uh, responses from uh, some famous people, and also uh, a lot of non-responses from <laughs> sure. a lot of famous people, and. 
the the guy who was my you know manager representative whatever he was uh, said you know this screenplay is something that i can pitch but it's a it's a it has a lot of <laughs> the main problem is that it wasn't commercial at all it would have been sure. very difficult to get this movie made yeah the problem with with hollywood yeah yeah so he said you need to write something really commercial you know try that so uh i did try that and i wrote I think I two more screenplays, uh, just with that in mind, trying to write something that was uh, what is called a high concept sure. uh, script that you could pitch in just two seconds and somebody would go, yes, I can see that. It's a movie. But I just wasn't able to, I wasn't able to write that way either because I just don't know enough about what's going on in the movie uh, world to write something that would appeal to uh, a large audience which is probably a part of the truth, but also another part of the truth is that I, I don't think I enjoyed writing under the, the idea that what I would be writing would be commercial. I found it very hard and, and stifling. And, For sure. Yeah, stultifying to try to write something under those conditions. So eventually, just to you know, put a, a quick ending on it, I gave up. I just stopped writing screenplays. <laughs> you know, I just had enough. Uh, That's really it, interesting. Yeah, well... It was fun. I learned a lot from writing uh, those things, and uh, I don't regret it. Yeah. What was your what was your screenplay about? The one that was not commercial, the one uh, that you liked that was that was good. Yeah. So that one uh, was called Mermaid. Uh, it's about a transgender person who uh, wants to be a mermaid. Uh, he's actually a man. Yep, but he's yeah. Yeah. That's not commercial. It's not commercial. Right? <laughs> plus, plus, it's set. Well, so it seems commercial now. But it was set in the 50s, so uh, and in the Deep South, and it it would have so the person who plays the central character would have had to have been a not known person, so that you wouldn't have any expectations about their gender going in. Right. So there's a huge strike against it. Secondly, it was a period piece, so anything involving, you know, you got to get 1950s cars, you got to get 1950s sets, you, and you, and it's in the Deep South, so you've got to find a strange location. It was it was just doomed from the from the start in terms of you know being a commercial uh, movie, but uh, it, you know I think it was a decent script just on its own terms, but certainly not uh, something that you know anybody could sell, especially from an unknown writer. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The concept is cool, though. I like it. Yeah. So let's actually begin with some really hard hitting stuff. Sure. Is it? A requirement for male philosophers to have a beer. <laughs> uh, no, I know why you asked the question. It certainly looks that way. It does. Uh, and I've thought about this myself and been puzzled by it and almost embarrassed by the fact that I have a beard because it fits, you know, this, this stereotype. Uh, I wish I could explain it. Uh, I just, I, I don't know what it is. But no, it's not a requirement. Okay. And I know some clean-shaven philosophers. In fact, my, my you know, dissertation advisor never had a beard. So there. Okay. So it's, it's been defeated. It's not a requirement. Yeah. And uh, Professor Giovanelli doesn't have a beard. Professor Gildenhoist doesn't have a beard. That's, that's true. Uh, I don't have to mention that Professor Masto doesn't have a beard. So there's lots of people in the philosophy department who you know, don't have beards. Okay. Half of us. Just half. So let's, let's start at the beginning then with you. So where did you grow up? I grew up um, mostly like in terms of my boyhood in Alabama. Okay. I was born in Virginia, but my family and I moved from there when I was two and a half, I think, uh, to to Birmingham. Moved from uh, Virginia to Birmingham, Alabama, and lived there for six years or so. Um, and then we moved to Tennessee for three years and then back to Alabama for three more years. So basically the deep south, but most of it in Alabama. Yeah. What was, what was that like? Did you like it? Well, I was, you know, I was pretty young, pretty young. Um, but... I don't think I did, actually. Uh, and while I can't point to any conscious memories of not liking it, uh, there is the fact that I have never gone back. <laughs> I've never, <laughs> never visited, never had any desire to go back there. I did enjoy Tennessee, um, where I lived from about nine years old to 12, because that was in Sewanee, Tennessee. And that's, I don't, have you heard of the University of the South? No. Well, it's a, yeah, no, nobody up here has heard of it, but it's sort of a big, big name regional university in the South. And it's located on a mountain in this town called Suwannee, Tennessee. And it's beautiful. It's thousands of acres of uh, forests and valleys. And the, the buildings that constitute the campus 
are, are all built in that sort of quasi-medieval fashion that you associate with Cambridge or Oxford. So it was a really fun place to, to grow up. In fact, I, I, I skipped a lot of school when I was, <laughs> when I was uh, a kid there because we lived right next to, not right next to, but like, you know, 100 yards away from the student union. And I would, instead of going to school, I would, I would go there. I would sort of wave goodbye to my parents you know, <laughs> on my bicycle uh, as though I were heading off to school. But then I would go to the, uh, the student union and play pool. <laughs> yeah, so I enjoyed that. But Alabama, no. Sure. When did you end up leaving uh, the South? Well, so uh, in my junior year of high school, halfway through it, in fact, we moved from Alabama to West Virginia. Now, it hardly, it hardly seems like an escape from the South, but to me, that was like <laughs> we were going to Canada. You know, in West Virginia, wow, my God, it's so far away. It's so north. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, spent, uh, I spent a year and a half in West Virginia. Okay. So, your parents are ministers, right? Yeah, I think yeah. they would call themselves priests. priests. Actually, my mom would call herself a bishop. She's a bishop. Oh, okay. Retired, of course. Okay. I don't know the formal terminology that well. Yeah, in, so different different yeah, different versions of uh, Christianity have different labels for their sure. officials. But uh, yeah, uh, I think in the Episcopal Church, which is where my parents uh, do their thing or did, they're still, you know, they're retired as I said. Uh, I think it's priests. Unless you're a bishop and then you're a bishop. Right. Did growing up in that kind of household do anything for you, shape you in any way? Do you ever think you would do something like that? I don't... You mean like be a priest? Yeah. No way. Good grief. No, absolutely not. Um, I don't think that my... I mean, of course it must have influenced me in some way, but not not theologically, not in terms of my worldview. You know, my parents were very laid back and they were not the sort of people who you know, even talked uh, to us about God or That's interesting. Jesus or any of that stuff. That that was their own thing, and they were very passionate about it. But but either they were so busy, you know, becoming, you know, going through seminary and, and you know, getting their, getting their master's in divinity and then, you know, struggling with their first jobs as priests and all the rest. They were, they were, they were very busy with all that, so maybe they were just too occupied to bother us with any of it. But I think mainly it's it was just their idea that, if there was something about it that attracted us, we would notice and pursue it. And if not, we wouldn't. And my brother did, in fact, become a priest. So, you know, I think that <laughs> it influenced him in that particular way. Yeah. You already mentioned that you would often skip school to play pool mm. in, the, in a student union. Yeah. Did you like school growing up? You're no, not- no, I really, I hated school. Yeah. I was miserable in school. Uh, this elementary school, high school, both? I think, you know, the first few years of elementary school were okay. I don't remember hating them. Uh, I remember starting to hate school probably in, f- well, I know I hated it in the fifth grade. I did too. Teacher was terrible. T- our teacher was terrible. And, and this, was in a, this was in Sewanee, Tennessee. This was the only bad part uh, of my experience there. And it was pretty bad. Uh, it was a kind of a split classroom with one teacher. So one half of the class was, I think, fifth grade, and the other half was sixth grade. And she, her attention seemed to be focused mostly on the sixth graders. And even then, you know, her teaching powers, I don't think, were that good. But when she was focused on us... Powers may even be... Yeah, right, whatever. <laughs> abilities. <laughs> but she she was not a great teacher, and I don't want to blame her completely. Uh, I, I was also not a good student. I, I wasn't interested in the material, and uh, I was kind of a troublemaker. And it just wasn't it just wasn't for me. I couldn't stand it. I, I wanted to get out of there. And it was particularly the math uh, that got me in trouble. I was always bad at math, or at least I thought I was. Later, it turned out much later, I was actually good at it. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, for a long time, it seemed like I was bad at it. And whenever I had to deal with it. I just couldn't, and it always got me in trouble, and it started then. So, you know, I I started to skip school. But the the strange thing is that because I was skipping school and then my parents eventually found out about it, they came to the conclusion that – or at least they entertained the hypothesis that I must be really smart, right, because I'm so, <laughs> I'm so bored and I don't want to go to school. So they – they had me tested, uh, some kind of intelligence test, I guess, an, an IQ test. And they decided that I should skip the sixth grade and go from the fifth into seventh grade, 
which was, I just thought that was a great idea because you know? <laughs> I would be, I would be leaving that elementary school and going to this, this private school nearby that my, my elder siblings went to. So I'd be with them or I'd see them. And I knew it was a much cooler school and I would be away from that teacher and all the, all the crappy teachers in the elementary school. And it was great uh, being in seventh grade because that's when I discovered drama and acting and all the rest. But I was really in trouble mathematically because I didn't learn what I was supposed to learn in fifth grade. I skipped sixth grade and suddenly I was in pre-algebra and I just, I was mystified. I could not understand that. This is very interesting, all of this coming from an academic, uh, but, I, but I do believe you. Yeah, no, it's, it's true, I, I, I assure you. So you say you like drama a lot then? Does that, I did, yeah. Is that, is that true now too? No, I, I couldn't dream of acting now. I mean, apart from the fact that you know, any teacher or professor is acting to some extent, uh, there's, a, there's a performance aspect. But no, I can't imagine now getting on a stage, you know, having learned lines and in front of a crowd... I don't. I don't think I would be very good at it, and I also don't think I would enjoy it. That's interesting. Maybe uh, there are certain things that it's just those are for a certain stage of your life, and then yeah, past that, past that timeline. Yeah, I have tremendous uh, respect for people who can do it. I think acting acting well is extremely hard, and the people who the people who do it in films, uh, especially with all the distractions uh, involved in a you know on a film set, it's mystifying to me that those people can can do it. Yeah. Are, we, are we keeping track of how many times I've used the word mystify or mystifying? Uh, yeah, yeah, the computer's okay, actually good. bringing that up. I just so. want to, I think uh, like I should be attached to some electrical thing that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> charges me when I say we'll, it. We'll get the engineer in here to, to, <laughs> okay. to set that up. Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't consider myself an actor in any way. I haven't really acted since I was eight, nine, ten, or whatever. Yeah. But now I'm starting to do some sketch comedy stuff. And one of the things I find really difficult about film acting, which this is the first time I've ever done that, is all the starting and stopping. Yes, yes, yes. You have to be in the zone for one moment, stop, be in the, be in the zone later. Right. I, find, I find that difficult. So you've had to do this uh, yourself with the comedy routines that you've been pursuing? Yes, I have. Have you been, have you been going to like open mics or uh, even into New York to, to... No, I haven't, but that's, that's something that uh, should be on the horizon that I think I would like to do a lot. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. Uh, I I have also tremendous respect for comedians. I love I, I love uh, listening to uh, Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, I miss the whole show, like the the '90s show Seinfeld. Because, so do I. Yeah, I mean, I mi- I missed it. I didn't. I didn't oh, see you any missed of it. it. Yeah. Yeah, I was in graduate school at the time, and we well, can go back now. <laughs> I know. I did try. Uh, I went back and, and looked at it, but somehow it just seemed it seemed dated. Um, but I. I love the way that, say, in Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, um, and also in that documentary he made several years ago, I think it's called Jerry Seinfeld Comedian. Uh, It's following him and some other guy uh, in an attempt to rebuild, you know, an hour's worth of material. And it really exposes the process and the difficulties of writing comedy, performing comedy, getting people to listen to and appreciate your comedy. Uh, and people people who do that well, I think, are really geniuses. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, th- yeah, with comedy, having to, having for one to be good is hard in itself. And then for two to have people laugh is just an added challenge that is mystifying. Yeah, right. So, I mean, uh, I don't want this to all be about me. What, what about, I mean, so you have... You're out there trying to to write jokes and to tell jokes, or or how how are you how are you doing this? Sure. So, I've performed stand up once. Yeah. One one singular time. It was here, here at on an campus. open mic night. Okay. I think it went well. I yeah. think it went fine. Well, you can tell by the number of people laughing. Exactly. And I only had like three or four people like going through the crowd, like like these bouncer type figures, like making sure people were laughing. So <laughs> that's good. Like, good. So so that was okay. Yeah. Um, so that, so I've written some things. I have some standup material written, but I need to go out there and make that first step and sure. go to a club, go to an open mic night and, and just try. Cause it's very easy to just not try. Of course. Right. You can stare at your computer and think, oh, that's really funny. Yeah. Uh, but until you've tried it out, you don't really know. Exactly. Um, so when, when you, when you did that open mic here at, on campus, 
Did you did you get a sense of how your style might be if you continue to do this? Are you sort of a deadpan guy, or are you theatrical? Or? Yeah, um, that's tough. I'd say that comedically, I feel like I've even changed from that point one year ago. Yeah. Um, and I'm not really sure how. Um, I feel like I'm always uh, changing stylistically, kind of. Hmm. I now think that... I would like I like my humor to be a little weirder than it once was, and I thought originally I could see myself doing the kind of Jerry Seinfeld observational kind of stuff. Yes, but I find myself coming up with ideas that are more and more dissimilar to that, and stuff that's a little stranger. Um, so, if you had to compare it, I, I know comparisons are depressing and and uh, misleading, but if you had to compare, at least what. Well, let me let me put it this way. Point to a comedian whose style you think, okay, if I could just do it that way, I'd be happy. Yeah. You know. No such person. I think I think the thing is that I don't know yet with yeah. stand-up. Okay. Right. I think with other kinds of writing, mm. like with sketch writing, uh, I really started to identify with Portlandia, yeah. Fred Armisen show a lot sure. now. I really like that. That's a brilliant uh, show. I like how it's not I like how it's weirder, it's stranger, it's less standard. Um it doesn't necessarily have a a huge point to it, but it's just funny. Uh, by the way, I'm glad that you mentioned Portlandia because I do happen to know that show. And so far, it sounds like I'm really hip to everything that's going on right. in media, <laughs> and com- but I'm not. I just happen to have seen Portlandia, and not even all of it, but I've seen like the first season. And We're getting lucky. This is good. Yeah, So, but I, I mean, I, I don't have a television. Um, really? I mean, nobody, I mean, few people have, fewer and fewer people have televisions now, but I'm saying I didn't, you know, get into the habit of watching television. Now, when I when I watch stuff, uh, it's you know the way most people watch it on Netflix or or Amazon or whatever. But I'm really I, I don't keep track of what's going on in, in popular culture. I just have no idea. It's in many ways, even though it's supposed to be a fun hobby. In uh, many ways, it's become a burden. Yeah. Because there's there are so many things there's out there. Too much of it. Yeah, and it becomes it becomes stressful to a point. Yeah. So this is I think this is part of what's stressful about uh, social media as well. Yeah. Once, once you once you enter that world, there's so many data points that you have to or that you're sort of drawn to. You click on one thing and then you're immediately you know drawn to others. And suddenly, if you're at all like me, it's sort of obsessive, and you want to you want to be able to have in your mind a map of the whole territory or at least the territory that concerns yeah. you you know it could take months just to like figure out who's who and who's saying what and who's important and oh god it's awful exactly i have this tendency that when i do something even if it's something fun and relaxing i have this desire where i really want to do it comprehensively yes where i can't just like go into something and like look at one thing and not have a complete picture not have a map of, of what mm. everything is mm. out there and i that nags at me like when i watch a when I watch basketball games, I always watch the full thing. I can never just watch <laughs> one piece. If I'm going to watch the game, yeah. I'm going to start from the beginning, and I'm going to go to the end. Wow. And that's – it's odd. But, well, I but mean, it's what I, I, do. I totally understand it. Uh, I, I myself cannot do that with sports games. This is where not having a television actually makes a difference because uh, if, you don't, if you don't have a television and cable, watching you know, the NFL games, for example, is – it's burdensome. You have to, if you're going to do it online, you know, you have to sign up in you know, NFL.com. Yeah, it's a it's, hassle. It's a hassle and it's expensive. And so, you know, I grew up because I'm from the South watching football and I like to watch football, but now, and for many years, I haven't been able to watch entire games, but uh, unlike you, I go to YouTube uh, throughout the NFL season, and I just go to the you know the the highlights. Yeah. And I've realized that the whole game is basically you can boil it all down to about <laughs> six minutes. Everything else is uh, timeouts, commercial breaks, uh, dead you know moments between plays. It's true. It's ridiculous yeah. how much time is spent not playing football. Oh football yeah, game. absolutely. Now yeah. basketball is different. Basketball is different. I find I enjoy. tracking the whole thing, watching the course of the game. With football, now that there's DVR, I find that if I'm watching a game just live on television, I need to be doing something else. (laughs) Because what am I going to do during during all these gaps? It's a complete waste of time. Yeah, it really really is. So at what point did you stop having a television? Was this before you'd watch TV on on a laptop? Oh, well, before. I mean, just as soon as as I went to college, you know, I I didn't have a TV and... 
and then I just kept not having one. It wasn't, uh, and then it became a habit to not have a TV, and then a kind of a source of perverse pride to, to tell you, <laughs> I don't have a TV, I don't watch television. And now it's just a fact. Uh, but I, I, never, I never stopped watching television for ideological reasons. It was just a matter of economy. You know, when you know, I, was, I was 18 and I, I didn't have the money to, <laughs> right. to buy a television. Yeah. So I just, I fell away from television. Well, that's good because there are no good ideological reasons for why you should not have a TV or watch TV. <laughs> so so, so no, there's no good sort of theoretical reason for not having a television? No, I can't think of any. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. So this, bring, this brings us into college then for you. Yeah. So in high school, in elementary school and high school, you don't like school. Did not like school. You're a self-proclaimed poor student. Yeah. And then did something change for you in college? Yeah, something changed for me in college. Oh, I went to um, I went to West Virginia University, and I was lucky to get in because I was coming out of high school with, uh, I think, a 2.4 uh, GPA, which is Which pretty... to me, is, as Professor McLeod's student, is stunning in a way, <laughs> mystifying. <laughs> mystifying, indeed. <laughs> but when I got to uh, West Virginia University, I... Uh, I discovered some. I discovered that I actually liked uh, reading and and thinking and writing and talking in a way that involved books. And uh, uh, one of the professors there noticed this and encouraged me in this and said, "You know, it seems like you kind of screwed up <laughs> like the first eighteen <laughs> years of your life academically." Yeah. And you're here now, but I think that you might want to consider just starting all over in a way. And I was very interested in uh, religious studies. I thought, you know, maybe I would study Buddhism or Christianity or I wasn't really sure what. But uh, this professor had gotten his doctoral degree from the University of London in England. And he said, look, it seems like you're really interested in religious studies. They have an amazing religious studies program there. Uh, I can write a letter for you. You can apply. I, I can't make any promises. I really don't know, you know what they're going to say about your application, but give it a shot. So I, I did. And I sent all the relevant material to, the, to King's College, part of the University of London. And they didn't really accept me. I got a letter saying, we got your materials and it looks good. <laughs> But it was not a formal acceptance. And in the meantime, so we're getting into, you know, late August, early September uh, of what would have been my sophomore year at West Virginia University, but I didn't go. So, so the academic year had started at WVU, and I had to make a decision about what to do. Yeah, that, by that time, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, that was over in terms of West Virginia University, and the, the, the English academic uh, fall doesn't begin until, I think, October. So there was like this awkward couple of weeks there when I was still at home and my parents were wondering, what, what are you doing? And, you know. <laughs> but I decided to just leave, to just go to London. I had, I had like a – it wasn't an acceptance, but it was a letter that said, you know, maybe. So I, I just showed up in London uh, and went to the relevant office and said, I'm here. And, you know, I was ready to write a check. So I – I was admitted. It seems like a like a great life lesson. Just don't, uh, don't yeah. not to sit around and just do something, and also have no, a it was check. An, it was an, there was no lesson. It was an idiotic thing to do. <laughs> I don't recommend it. I'm not a role model. But the way it, but the way it turned out, it turned out fine. But it's not. I don't think that's a. I don't think as a general policy you should show up at a school, that have you, especially if it's you know, you know, across the ocean. I was thinking of, of applying to that to some job in a year or so. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm right. Here. Some major studio. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean you didn't hire me? I'm here. <laughs> How could you not hire me? <laughs> yeah. See, the difference, though, is that they'd be paying you. I was paying them. That's true. So they were, they were That's happy. an important distinction. Yeah, they were happy to have me. So you're a, you're a Buddhism major in college. That's right. And you got, you got very into it. I did. To the point where in the, during a summer, you spent, a, I spent, you spent a, s- a summer at a Buddhist monastery. Yes, that's right. Correct. Uh, in between my – so the – the BA program in England is just three years long. So in between my second and third year, I spent a summer uh, in Thailand in a in a Buddhist monastery. And oh, you can't just, you can't just leave it at, at that. <laughs> you know, I'm going to ask some follow up questions. Go ahead, follow up. That will. Okay, so when you're go- you're going there, is it 
did you go for educational purposes to learn what it was like or was it in any way spiritually connected? I didn't really feel spiritually involved in it. Uh, I, I wanted to see, well, I mean, mainly I wanted to travel. You know, I wanted to go to Thailand uh, and just see that part of the world. But uh, I, I was going particularly because I had, I had won a, a travel scholarship from, from the religious studies department. Uh, and it's given to the person who, or a person who, you know, writes a proposal whose, you know, work is promising and all the rest. And then if they think all that is good, they give you some money and you can go and go to a place where you can see your religion, the, the one that you're studying on the ground, so to speak. So th that's how it happened. But I, I wanted to travel. I did, I was interested in, you know, how things, you know, operated at this particular monastery and you know monasteries in general but it, i don't think it really was a spiritual quest when i got there i did try to meditate and i, I did live the way the monks lived you know i got up at four o'clock in the morning and you know helped help them you know beg for alms and all the rest but i actually found it quite dull to be honest yeah i mean i'm just not i'm not good at sitting around and, and meditating I know that that means I wasn't doing it right, <laughs> yeah. but I just didn't, I wasn't interested in learning how to- Don't blame the practice. Right, right, right. Blame the <laughs> practitioner. Uh, so it was my fault right. uh, completely. Of course. I was a failed Buddhist and a, certainly a failed monk, but I, 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 I'm glad that I did it, but I, it's not something I would ever do again. It was, it was not a pleasant experience. Did you get the sense that the other monks there with you- Felt felt similarly, or or that's a great question. Or a lot of them, I'm sure some of them were were genuine in, genuinely into the mindset. But there had to, there had to have been others who were, like, oh man, yes, oh, they're struggling a bit. There were, but I think that's because of the peculiarities of the Thai way of doing things with respect to monasteries. So in Thailand, the system is set up in such a way, and this might be true in other uh, Southeast Asian countries, but it's especially well known in Thailand uh, that uh, it's it's expected. Uh, for young men or even older men to spend some time in a monastery, maybe a week, maybe two months, maybe six months. But it, it's, uh, it's natural for people to come in and spend a little time, men to come in and spend a little time there. So with respect to those people, uh, I'm sure there are lots of, lots of them who, after a couple of weeks, say to themselves, if not out loud, this is miserable, I can't, yeah. can't wait till this is over. But with respect to the with respect to the the full time monks, I never got the impression that they didn't like it or or were less than fully dedicated. They they seem they seem devoted to it. Yeah, that that that's impressive. Yeah, that's I mean, cool. of course, I didn't speak any Thai, so <laughs> they might have been telling me this is terrible. But <laughs> monks are notoriously good actors. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, no, some some of them did speak English, um, and they 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 were into it. They dug it. So after after undergraduate, you decide to pursue a a graduate degree in philosophy. Yeah, I mean, actually, I I, I hadn't made up my mind yet about whether to pursue oh, okay. philosophy or religious yeah. studies, and I didn't I didn't really discover philosophy until like, the very end of my undergraduate career. So it was it was a tough call. I, I knew I was going to go to graduate school, but I didn't know whether it was going to be philosophy or religious studies. So I applied to programs in each. And in the end, uh, I just decided I would do philosophy. I, I, I knew that I was not going to be that interested in learning all the languages uh, that would be required for, you know, pursuing Buddhism in a scholarly way. I'd have to I'd have to really learn Pali or really learn Sanskrit or some other language like that. And I had been introduced to those as an undergraduate, but only in the most rudimentary way. And I, I didn't enjoy that part, but that's a huge part. Learning, learning and mastering the, you know, one or more of those languages is an essential part of being a serious Buddhist scholar. And I, I knew that I wasn't gonna be able to do that. Sure. So you end up going to the University of Washington. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You, uh, the, the tone of your voice makes it seem like a- Well, I just don't know how you knew that. I guess you've been oh, doing I, your research. I have my, I have my, I have my ways. I have yeah, my ways. I, yeah. won't, I won't say how okay. I figured it out. But, uh. Yeah, yeah. I went to the University of Washington uh, because that was, you know, I'll be honest, that was the only philosophy graduate program that accepted me because I was applying from a, a religious studies department. I had no philosophy on my transcript 
and my GRE score was the worst. <laughs> In fact, I didn't even know that I was supposed to take the GRE. Uh, and so the last minute, uh, that there was, I met an I met an American student who was getting a master's degree uh, in London, and she knew I was applying to graduate schools or thinking about applying to graduate schools, and she said, and this is, I think this was in December um, of the you know the the, the 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 December before I would be you know at least in principle uh, showing up at some other school in the fall, and she started talking about the GRE and uh, I must have taken it and what my score was and I I had no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> So I had to, uh, I had to do a crash course on my own in the GRE, which for me just meant buying a book and looking at it. And then I think within a week, I had to show up at the this test site in London as an overflow student. So I wasn't as an overflow uh, test taker. I wasn't even guaranteed a spot at a desk, but I, I did show up and. And there's a long story about why I had no sleep the night before and all the rest. But <laughs> the fact is, I, did, I just did miserably on that test. Sounds like ideal test-taking conditions. No, they were yeah. terrible. It was really awful. But I, I did get into the University of Washington, miraculously enough. And then when I got there, uh, I did well. And then I transferred to the University of Massachusetts after two years at, at the University of Washington. Yeah. So one second before we get to the that, that transfer, you applied to philosophy graduate programs without ever taking philosophy? Uh, not officially. I, not sat, officially. I sat in on a okay. seminar uh, um, that was taught by Norman Malcolm, who you, you would not have heard of him, but he's, uh, he's dead now. But he was a famous student of Ludwig Wittgenstein's. And Wittgenstein is one of the greatest 20th century philosophers of all time. And, well, the greatest 20th century philosophers. And he he was this very old man at the time, and I was not I was not ready to be in that seminar. That that's the kind of seminar you would sit in on or take if you were like a senior philosophy major. You really knew the history of philosophy. But I I sat in on it and I liked it. And I also was beginning to have friends who were in the philosophy department, and I talked to them a lot, and I just enjoyed the conversations I had with them. So I I. I don't know how I was confident about this, but it just seemed like I want to continue talking and thinking about these things. So, you know, I did, I did apply, but without, yeah, without any, without any serious training as a philosopher. That's it. That's interesting. Yeah. So for most of your young life, you moved around a lot. I did. Yeah. Did you, you must have liked travel in some sense. I used to love it. I can't stand it now. Really? I hate traveling what, now. That's strange. It is strange. But what, I what just, did you like about it then that you don't like now? Um, I guess what I liked about it then is the same thing that I don't like about okay. it now. That is, well, particularly with the traveling that I was doing. Uh, at the time, you know, this, this was, you know, when I was a student in England and throughout that time I was doing a lot of traveling because I was in England and it was easy to travel from one place to another uh, given that London has a you know, major international airport. So, you know, I was, in, I was in Kenya, I was in Sweden, I was in India, I was in all these places. And because I was poor, I was basically broke, uh, I did very rough traveling. And I got sick a lot, and uh, I got injured a couple of times. <laughs> uh, and that, that forever became associated in my mind with travel. So now, even if I have to drive to Allentown, you know, which is just 20 miles away, I start to feel anxious. Like, I'm, am I going to get sick? You know, am I going to am I going to be killed? <laughs> <laughs> you went too hard into travel at one point. In I your life did. You, you ruined I, it. For I the, did. I did. For the rest. If I if I maybe if I took a trip now in some more leisurely fashion to a to a place where I wasn't just sort of scraping by uh, right. while while there, I would enjoy it. But I. I kind of like my life as it is. I have a have a routine, uh, and I don't like to be taken out of it. You know, if I if I go visit my family, for example, for a, you know a few days, uh, I think about the third or fourth day. I know that by the fourth day, I I, I can't take it anymore. I have to get back to my to my way of life. <laughs> so that's that's the ba that's the, that's what I really don't like about traveling: the fact that I'm. <laughs> not at home. <laughs> right. Okay. That, yeah. That's that's fair. Yeah. You're used to what you like. Right. That's fine. So I'm going to ask you a, a few questions about philosophy now. So everyone listening, you can just mute this probably. Um, <laughs> when, when people ask you what you do, mm. do you ever say you're a philosopher 
or you say I'm a philosophy I don't professor. See, yeah, I say I, I teach philosophy. Yeah. Yeah, that's usually what I say. I, I don't think I've ever said I'm a philosopher. Right, I that feel, sounds ridiculous. It does, yeah. Yeah. I, but at a time, it didn't sound ridiculous. Well, or did it? I think it's always, I mean, if we go back to Socrates in the very beginnings of Western philosophy, at least, you know, here's somebody who calls himself a philosopher and then is, you know, executed. And uh, that really set the tone <laughs> for, uh, you know, how philosophers were regarded ever since. We, we, we seem to be, see, now I'm calling myself a philosopher just for the sake of the show. Of course. Um, yeah, we were viewed as, uh, I don't know, subversive or head in the clouds or just, you know, overall undesirable uh, type of person. <laughs> Maybe that's why, I mean, that explains the beards. You know, we're trying to hide, conceal ourselves. But Maybe of course, it does. it's a terrible disguise because immediately we're identified as philosophers. <laughs> why did you all choose the same <laughs> so disguise? stupid. <laughs> we, we, philosophers are terrible at, uh, you know, coordinating group activities. Sure. Uh, but I'm sorry, I've forgotten where this was all starting. It was about uh, how no one would refer to themselves. Oh, as right. A yes, right, right. Yeah, I would never do that. I actually don't even like saying, especially to a stranger, uh, that I teach philosophy because my experience is that that's either the end of the conversation or it's the beginning of a terrible conversation. I think also that has also been my experience as well, but in obviously a When much you say you're a philosophy major. <laughs> No, when I say I'm a philosopher. Oh, you do? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I think that's been my experience too, but obviously in a much uh, smaller sense because I'm only a, a major, not a, a professor in it. It seems to be to me to be one of the most misunderstood subjects yes. or one that has just so many it's not assumptions based in it right. it's about not, it. Yeah, it's not taught in high schools. That's one problem. So people, people you know, who've even just finished high school – know roughly what chemistry is or, you know, yeah. what, what literature is um, or what the study of history might involve. But they they really have nothing to go on with respect to what philosophy would be except for these uh, bizarre uh, stereotypes of various kinds that are floating around in, in popular culture. Yeah. So th they they just have no, as you said, they have no idea what it is or what it involves. Oh, well. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah, and you cannot. And there, you cannot. So this is this is part of the bad conversation fork in the road, right? So there's either it's either the end of the conversation when you tell them you're a philosopher because they don't know what that is really, and they they just don't know what to say after that, or they think they know what it is, and then you have to have a conversation in which you slowly and and patiently and politely try to disabuse them of all of their, you know, false ideas about what philosophy is. Right. So very unlike Socrates. Very unlike Socrates. So I think, I think a good strategy is to not tell anybody that you teach philosophy. It's much better to say, um, I'm a math teacher. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because then, <laughs> then that will certainly end the conversation. Yeah. There's, that's like nobody wants to talk to you after that. But then no ill-conceived notions at the same time. Right. People, so. people have a rough idea of what mathematicians yeah. do. They do right. that stuff that they couldn't, you know, that they themselves couldn't do in high school. <laughs> right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit then about you uh, studying philosophy. Sure. How do you, or I guess it can apply to other, other things as well that you try to learn in a comprehensive way. Mm. How do you find that you learn philosophy? I find that I need to read very thoroughly, mm. take good notes and go over that or I will never remember anything. Yes, my experience is the same as yours. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I, philosophy I think is um I mean for a number of reasons it's very hard to understand. Uh, even even philosophers who are struggling to write clearly, you know, contemporary philosophers um writing in journals today uh for, you know, professional or semi-professional audiences, uh, that stuff can be extremely hard to understand. Partly because it's technical, um, uh, par partly also because it's very dense, uh, and that seems to be true of, of philosophy throughout its throughout its written history, at least. So, like you, when I when I sit down to to try to figure out what some philosopher is saying in a, in a book or a journal article or whatever, it, it takes a long time. I have I have to sit down. I have to read it several times. I have to take notes, uh, and really. Even then, I don't know for sure that I've understood it. The only way that I know for sure that I've understood it is um, if I write it, if I write about it, or if I teach it. 
te- teaching philosophy has really helped me understand the philosophy that that I'm teaching. Uh, but it's also it's also helped me learn how to read and respond to texts that I'm you know meeting for the first time. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Having to explain it in a really comprehensive way. Yes, it's inval- it's invaluable. It is invaluable. How about your work habits more generally? Oh God, they're the worst. Terrible. Mine, yeah, mine aren't mine aren't great aren't great either. <laughs> I started this this new thing where every time I start to do some work. I'll write down the time that I start, kind of like a, like I'm clocking into a job or wow. something, so that when I check the clock after some work and I see that it's been 12 minutes, I can be like, <laughs> okay, no, you, you can't stop now. You need, 12 you need minutes, that's a long time, and I would be proud of myself yeah. if, I could, if I could work well, steadily you. for 12 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. You should be proud. Yeah, I should. You're right. Right. Uh, by the way, I, you know yeah. the 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 work that I do these days um, is mostly poetry. I, I've been writing and, and publishing poetry for for not very long. I mean, I started getting interested in it. Uh, I shouldn't say getting interested in it. That makes it sound so trivial. Really passionately devoted to it um, in the fall of 2014. Uh, actually, the last part of that summer. But I I started um, studying poetry in the fall of 2014. And I've been studying it and writing it um, quite steadily, except for those terrible moments when I can't write anything uh, ever since. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when you talk about my work habits, these days it would be more about my work habits with respect to reading and writing poetry uh, than you know, reading or writing what would strictly be called philosophy. How did you get passionate about poetry and decide to really focus energy there? It's a mystery and an accident. I, hmm. I was, I was so in the summer of 2014, I was uh, reading a bunch of interviews. There's a, there's a famous journal called the Paris Review, and one of the things they're famous for is interviewing writers. And I, I had this great love of, of Hemingway, and I wanted to read their interview with Hemingway, which obviously was back in the, I guess it was in the, early 40s, maybe late 40s. And I saw when I was looking for that interview that the Paris Review published um, collections of all their interviews, at least with the most famous uh, authors. So I thought, well, what the hell? I'll, I like reading interviews with writers and interviews generally, so I'll just order all four of these books and just read the interviews with these, with these writers. So I read, I read the interviews with all the writers I had heard of, and then I thought, well, I got these books, so I, I'll just, I need to read them. Uh, it's that comprehensive, obsessive thing that we were talking yeah, about earlier. Right. And I ran into the poets, you know, the, so they're interviewing poets as well. And there was one poet in particular, Jack Gilbert, uh, whose interview was fascinating f- to me for some reason. And at the beginning of the interview in the book, there's a, there's a, a facsimile of one of his poems, handwritten. It's like a, a you know, his draft of the poem. And I really liked it. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a great poem. I want to read more of that guy's poetry. So, you know, I, I got on Amazon and ordered, uh, you know, Jack Gilbert's collected works and read them. And I was, I was just completely captivated by it. I don't, I don't think I like his poetry so much now, but I, I was really inspired by it then. And I started to, to read more and... I think anyone who reads a lot of poetry will tell you it's contagious. And what that is in the sense that once you start reading it, you, you almost immediately want to write it. So I started writing it and I thought, I want to study this a little more systematically. So I asked Professor Upton, uh, who's in the English department here and a great, great poet and a great short, short story writer and just a great person, if I could sit in on her uh, course that fall in modern and contemporary poetry. And she graciously said yes so i did and that's when i started trying to get a more comprehensive sense of you know the history of poetry at least in you know modern and contemporary stuff i've had very little exposure to poetry other than i guess high school english classes sure and i never really i never got into it i think mm-hmm. because the main barrier to me has been that it's hard yes a lot or at least the poetry i've read is is difficult to read it's difficult to understand yes well, so that aspect, uh, yeah, I, I agree. A lot of poetry is very hard to read, but thankfully, I had becoming I had been coming from philosophy, right? So, yeah. so while while poetry is difficult and difficult in its own in its own way, uh, difficult in in ways that are uh, that are different from the ways in which philosophy is difficult, 
I'd had a lot of experience, you know, banging my head against difficult texts. Yeah. So I, I was able to proceed. Uh, I actually don't like poetry that is so difficult it cannot be uh, comprehended. Uh, and there's poet. There's a lot of poetry out there that seems to me to just be nonsense or uh, intentionally obscure at best. And I, I don't like that stuff. I, 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 I resent it. <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, I think poetry doesn't have to be simple. It doesn't have to even be uh, easily accessible, but I feel like something should be being said in a, in a, in a poem <laughs> Certainly. that, that, that that ought to be discernible after, you know, a couple of readings. Yeah. I think that when I, tr when I would try to approach poetry, my mindset would be, well, I'm supposed to be enjoying this, but it seems mm. that I'm working so hard mm. that maybe it's just not the kind of, it's not, a, it's not the same thing as a novel. Novels can be difficult. Novels can be complex, but I don't think they're as difficult to crack the shell of to begin with. Yeah. And that might have been my problem, and maybe I just need to work harder. Maybe uh, I mean it, it, it's it's an acquired taste, and also yeah. uh, interpreting and understanding poetry is an acquired skill. You really have to. I mean, it's something you have to work on. Yeah, Unless I, wa you, I wanted it right away. <laughs> I mean, there are poems you can understand right away, um, <laughs> and I I think those are some of the best poems. Uh, but I also think that there are poems that are that are quite difficult to understand, but that are worth worth the struggle. Yeah, I believe that. Mm. I want to go back. Just for a moment to the to the philosophy stuff for a second. Sure. One thing you said in class, which was really interesting to me, especially given the nature of philosophy, is that you don't think that you have to always endorse a certain view. Philosophy is so much about arguing and it's taking a position, but you don't think it's necessary to to find yourself as the school of thought or or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I really like that. Have you always have you always been like that way? No, no, no. It was very liberating for me to come to that. I don't remember exactly when I did, but you know, in graduate school and for years afterwards, I I was I was putting myself under tremendous pressure. You know, am, am I an empiricist or a rationalist? Am I you know am I a theist or an atheist? Uh, you know, what, you know, with respect to the philosophy of mind, am I an eliminativist or an identity theorist or a reductionist? You know, all all the big questions and all the you know sub 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 minor questions were it seemed seemed to me to be crying out for either a yes or no answer, and I I just couldn't see myself able to come to a, a, a decision one way or the other. And I realized eventually that I didn't have to. Yeah. That is that the important thing about uh, philosophy, or let me put it this way, I think the important thing about addressing philosophical questions is not getting to the answer but surveying the range of possible answers and getting some sense of uh, the pluses and minuses associated with, with each answer, that it's important to have thought about it and to continue thinking about it. That's much more important than uh, you know, coming to a conclusion about it. Yeah, and I think that point makes so much sense and is so impactful because it seems like there's a lot of pressure to come to decisions in not just philosophy mm. and, and all in all in all in all other aspects of life. There's always that pressure to make a make a decision, be decisive and endorse something. Right. And we don't have to always endorse no, we don't. something. We don't. I mean, it is difficult when it comes to like grocery shopping. You have to make decisions there. Yeah, about, it's the worst. <laughs> right. Uh, but the, the one of the great luxuries of philosophy is that most of the questions that come up in it uh, you're you're deciding one way or another, or failing to decide one way or another will not have any influence on yeah. you know the day to day uh, uh, aspects of your life. It's true. So you can hold all of that stuff in the air without it worrying that it's going to fall down on you in some way. Yes, yeah, so you don't have to go to the grocery store and just walk out because yeah, the, I, the cash I, the I cashier couldn't. never says, "Look, you, you, we're not going to give you these groceries unless yeah. you give us an answer to the question of whether you know the mental supervenes on the physical." Yeah. <laughs> You're going to the wrong grocery stores if, if you are. Yeah. I think maybe even a related point to this is that it seems like your temperament is very much suited to what you do. You, you, you seem very relaxed, very, <laughs> always very calm, very, very zen even. Mm, wow. Do you not agree? Maybe you don't have to agree with the zen part, but you, <laughs> you are, you are mild-mannered. You, you don't seem like a stressed-out person. I think that... Um... I think 
That's partly true. Um, uh-huh. I, I've been doing this for a while. And so even if, even if I'm covering new material, I have a sense uh, of the possible moves that one might make in a discussion or in an argument or the rebuttal of an argument and so on. But in a lot of cases, that, that, that impression that you get that I'm, that I'm relaxed, is, it, it might be correct, but it's, it's largely because I've, I've, been, I've been there so many times that I have the luxury of not, not having to, to worry about what I'm going to say. But, I mean, getting back to the, 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 main, the main question, I, I, am, I am, I think, suited to this line of work. I mean, I, I really enjoy... I enjoy teaching very much. I, I like to get into the classroom, and I, I like to try to help people understand, you know, uh, uh, what seems to me to be a really important question uh, about God or morality or justice or whatever we're talking about that day or those weeks or those months. And I like I like to I like to see students struggle with this stuff and and to not know what to say or what to think. And I also, I mean, I like to try to model for them the ways I think one uh, can successfully think and write about these things. Now that you've so eloquently expressed why you're so suited (laughs) to teaching philosophy, if you could do something else, Mm. and you can't, I'm sorry, but you can't say poetry. No, that's fine. You'd be doing something else. What would you want to be doing? Professionally. I'd love to be a stand-up comic. Really? I think that, I mean, I I can't say that for sure because the life might be quite terrible. Yeah. um, Especially for an obscure one, you know, the terrible, you know, venues, terrible turnout and all the rest. But, the, the life of a fairly successful <laughs> stand-up comedian yeah. seems great. I, I'm 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 fascinated by that that procedure, that lifestyle, that you know, being on stage and and getting people to laugh. It's almost like being in the classroom and getting people to understand, <laughs> except that you know there's just more laughing involved. In, yeah, you know, in the comics case. Exactly. Yeah. Your your objective is slightly is slightly different. Slightly but, different. But it's yes. a, it's the same structure. That's right. Kind of. I'd also I mean I I think that I. I'm happy to be very happy and lucky to be, you know, a philosophy professor. But I also there, there's a significant part of me, and I'm not going to go into the poetry realm. But there's a significant part of me that is really interested in the arts and creating art and relating to, relating to those aspects of the world that seem to me best relatable to via art. So, in addition to the poetry, which I know I'm not supposed to be talking about, uh, I'm I'm a potter, and I like to make pottery. I like to be in the studio making pots. So, you know, if I could have been anything else, you know, so, some kind of uh, artist, maybe maybe just a craftsperson like a potter. I've seen your, I've seen your pottery around. I think just because you bring that mug to class, yeah, which I a, believe, yes. which I've inferred, from <laughs> philosophy major that. <laughs> That you've that you've made. Yes, uh, I think I've announced it on a couple of occasions when it seemed like uh, <laughs> people's attention, you know, needed to refocusing. I sort of hold uh, up the cup and say, "No, I'm pretty sure I inferred it." <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I have a lot of cups in the office, and I'll, I'll bring them. I'll bring them to. Uh, I'll bring one of them to, to, you know, lectures or class meetings, on a regular basis. I like them. Is there a term for that style of pottery? There. Well, there's a term for the cup, the kind of cup that I bring in most often. Yeah. It's not actually a mug. I think a mug has to have a handle, and I generally don't attach handles to these things. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm learning a lot about pottery already. <laughs> well, there's a there's a um, Far East Asian tradition of making a cups without handles. So, you know, the Chinese and the Japanese and the Koreans. Uh, and that's that's the pottery I like most, uh, by the way, that the tradition there, especially in the medieval periods and, and before. But that kind of cup is called a unomi. It's what the, I know it sounds weird, right? That's uh, what the Japanese would call a unomi. It's spelled Y-U-N-O-M-I. And it's just, it's just their everyday drinking cup, but no handle. Mm-hmm. How much time do you spend on pottery? Well, when I'm, when I'm actively involved, yeah. um, a lot. I mean, yeah. many, many, many hours a week. Uh, I, was not, cool. I was not in the pottery studio at all this semester. Uh, for a number of reasons. One, I, well, I was teaching three courses, and another, um, I, I was really, I wanted to devote all, basically all my spare time to poetry, but I'm, I'll am i be back in the studio this uh, this summer. 
uh, working for a big firing that takes place in the fall. Cool. Yeah. It seems like, well, obviously you have a lot of hobbies, but it seems like you're the kind of person who really likes to be occupied doing things. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't stand not doing something, which is not to say that I'm... I mean, I'm often found not doing anything. Uh, as we were talking about earlier, it, you know, my work habits are terrible. And if, say, I'm supposed to be grading <laughs> papers after, after you know, a paragraph at most of the paper, I will wander off to YouTube and watch, you know, a 30-minute fail compilation video. <laughs> and I just hate myself for doing it. I hate myself while I'm doing it. I hate myself after I've yeah. done it. Uh, I just feel dirty and horrible, you know. But but I I... In spite of my my obsession about staying busy, I waste a lot of time. I, I'm a terrible. I'm, I'm I procrastinate. I'm lazy. Uh, I, I have I have all those vices. Believe me. I, I can really relate to that. I, <laughs> to me, yeah. I also feel like I'm that kind of person who needs to be doing something. Mm. I never just sit around. Yeah. Really, I can't just like sit around and I don't know. I feel like some people like go on the internet and just do stuff. I've done it. Yeah. I've been there. Like I'll scroll through my Twitter feed, yeah, uh, for indefinite periods of time when I'm doing work. But when I'm freed up and I can do, be doing hobbies, then then no, not really. Yes. But I feel like, but then yeah, there, it's that weird mix of always wanting to do something, but <laughs> but being lazy, right? Well, so, I mean, simultaneously, I, I, I rationalize my large swaths of laziness by saying to myself something like, well. You need these. You need these moments of wasted time uh, yeah. in order to be able to do well the things that you do when you're not wasting time. Exactly. And now I think that's probably just bullshit, but <laughs> but it helps. It helps me. It helps me cope with the fact that I'm that I'm so lazy. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You can't be making pottery all the time. Right? No. You can't of course be not. Writing poetry all the time, or even studying philosophy all the time. No. You'd you'd overwork yourself. You would, no. and and the results would suck. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Okay, one really, really random thing that's not that is not in keeping with anything. Good, I, I like random. We've spoken about people tend to ascribe personality to cities. Wow. And I'm not a really well traveled person. I haven't been that many places. But people will say like, "Oh, like New York. Well, it's just different from Seattle." I've been to New York. I've not been to Seattle. Right. But people will say that New York is this way and it has this feel. I've never felt a feeling, or I've never felt a city to have a feel before. Mm, right. Any place to have a feel. Huh. I just, I don't get it. So you're asking me, do I think cities have feels? And if so, which sure. cities have which feels? <laughs> just, give me, just give me your list of all okay. the cities you've and been to. <laughs> cities and their feels. How have you felt? Uh, this is a very, very vague notion, right? The, 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 the personality of a city. I have to say, I haven't really thought about it. I mean, there are obviously differences between cities that we could point to that are that are uh, obvious. You know, differences in 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 the buildings, differences in the in the surroundings. You know, Seattle. Right. Seattle is surrounded by these monumental mountains, uh, and uh, it, it's ha it has a different climate. New York, you know. Uh, is surrounded by more of New York, <laughs> uh, and it has a, a very different climate. But yeah, the mood. And there, I'm sure it has something to do with the people living sure, in the right. city. Obviously, but even I mean, how many of them can you meet or even know on a, in a superficial way? Sure. So. And how many of them could you really group into the same general category? Sure. Yeah, I I don't uh -huh. know, but I'm I'm tempted to fall in with those who say. Well, you know, Seattle is more laid back, and right. you know, New York is so rushed and hectic, and you know, it smells like onion rings. And, but that's not really, I'm not, you know, I, I don't want to say that Seattle is more laid back. I just don't know what that means. This is exactly <laughs> this is exactly the the thought that's kept me up that <laughs> right. I've really struggled. Yeah, with. I I think it would be wise to to refrain from speaking in those terms about cities. At okay. best, they are. Sloppy generalizations and loose talk for for things that could be said more precisely and more accurately at at a at a much lower level with respect to individuals. Exactly, you got that, everyone. Okay. <laughs> no more personalities <laughs> with no more no more city personalities. Is the official pronouncement that's done? Right. Do you have a favorite type of transportation way of getting around? Wow. Um, 
I used to really love my bicycle. I had to give up riding a bicycle basically when I moved to Easton. Before that, I had never had a car. Yeah, I owned my huh. I owned my first car. You know, when I when I came here to teach uh, at Lafayette. I yeah, and bicycles are great. I love I love riding a bicycle if it's for a long distance. Um, I think I would prefer some kind of teletransportation machine. I hate traveling long distances in cars or trains or planes or boats. But if I, I will say this, I think if I had to pick any one of those, it would be a train for a long distance. Yeah. Yeah. I like trains. I think my favorite non, my favorite way, my favorite way of doing a long distance without me having to drive would be a train. Yes. But I like driving. Oh, I hate driving. It obviously has its its negatives. Yes, like everybody else on the road, for example. Everyone else on the road, it can be stressful. You get tired. Yeah. But when you're driving, you can just kind of, and especially if you're driving alone, you can kind of just like be in your own little world. You can't, though. That's exactly what you can't be in when you're driving. You've got to be really? so hyper alert and not in your own world. But after a while. That's when accidents happen. Oh, God. Here's another thing we should oh. be clear about before this is all over. First of all, no more, no more ascribing personalities to cities. Secondly, no more being in your own world when you're driving. You don't ever just drift off. I do, but that's what I'm saying. That's when, that's when, I, that's yeah. when the, like the internal red light comes on. You, you make a good safety point. I, <laughs> yes. I, I get hey, it. Hey, <laughs> sa- safety first, man. That's, yeah. that's what's really important. You're right. If we've, if we've learned anything here today, it's, it's that. Absolutely. All right. Professor McLeod, it's, it's been great. Uh, Jay, thanks so Had much. Had a great I, time. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so All much right. for having me. Sure.